The headlines tonight. Pakistani surrender in Dhaka, Dhaka, Dhaka as Bangladesh liberated. Tea party in Boston Harbor. And Americans fight on horses in the Pacific. Plus, coming up, an exclusive report on the dangerous world of matadors who ride elephants instead of bulls. Those are the headlines. Happy now. News Bang, bringing the good news to those who need it most. 1971. In a stunning turn of events, the Pakistani forces in Dhaka have surrendered, marking the end of both the Bangladesh Liberation War and the Indo-Pakistani War. This comes as a surprise to many, as Pakistan, known for its large Muslim population, never expected to lose control over its eastern region. The capital city of Dhaka has now become the newfound independent state of Bangladesh, leaving Pakistan reeling from India's overwhelming victory. Reports indicate that approximately 93,000 Pakistani servicemen have been taken hostage by the Indian army. Eyewitnesses describe chaotic scenes as uniformed men waved white flags and threw their weapons in the air, some even seen doing cartwheels and shouting Jai Hind in celebration. One captured soldier, Imran Khan Duwala, lamented, We never stood a chance against their superior wit and cunning. Meanwhile, celebrations erupted on the streets of Dhaka as locals danced in the streets to traditional Bengali tunes and burned effigies of Yahya Khan job done wrongly. The world watches with bated breath as a new nation is born out of this historic defeat. 1773. In a daring act of defiance, the Sons of Liberty, a group of American colonists, have thrown 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor in protest against the Tea Act of 1773. The act, passed by the British Parliament, aimed to bail out the East India Company by lowering tea prices and taxes. However, the colonists saw this as taxation without representation and decided to make their voices heard. Dressed as mohawks, they boarded three ships, Dartmouth, Eleanor and Beaver Killer. They then proceeded to hurl the tea overboard while chanting, No taxation without representation, eyewitnesses report. One bystander? Timothy Crotchettleworth said, It was a sight to behold. They were as mad as a box of frogs they were. I've never seen such a display of anti-tea sentiment in all my life. The incident has sparked outrage among British officials who have vowed not to stand for this insolence. The Boston Tea Party has now become an iconic event in American history and will surely go down in infamy. Or at least until something else more interesting happens. In 1942. 1942, and the world was at war. The Battle of Mount Austin, the Galloping Horse and the Seahorse raged on in Guadalcanal, a tropical paradise turned inferno. The Empire of Japan, known for their love of sushi and not apologizing, clashed with the Yanks in a conflict so brutal it made Pearl Harbor look like a game of patter-cake. The Americans, led by General Doughboy Makami Pants, were determined to take back the South Seas mandate from Admiral Surrender San's Japanese forces. The fighting was fierce. Bullets flew like overpriced sushi in Soho, and grenades exploded like poorly cooked tempura. In the end, it was Private Dipsy Doodle who turned the tide by riding a war elephant named Dumbo up Mount Austin and planting Old Glory on its peak. The Japanese retreated in disarray, vowing to return with more tentacles than ever before, 
the Allies celebrated with a victory currywurst as casualties mounted into the millions. And so ended another day in this global sausage fest we call World War II. News bang, making sense of the inconceivable. Today's weather brings snow in the south, wind across the Atlantic, and scorching heat in the southern hemisphere. This curious mix of elements paints a vivid picture of our ever-changing climate. Shakanaka Giles now brings us further details on this unusual day. Enjoy, and remember to dress appropriately for the weather where you are. It's a peculiar weekend indeed. Snow is expected in the south, reminiscent of the time when Jack Frost decided to make a cameo at the White House Christmas party. Across the pond in Slaybra, it seems Santa's reindeers are preparing for a marathon as the winds will be blowing at the speed of a racing Rudolph. In the Southern Hemisphere, summer's in full bloom in Sunbaked Island. The temperatures are expected to soar like a rocket ship blasting off into space. In conclusion, snowy White House, windy sleigh rides and summer heat waves Enjoy the day, and that's all the weather. Nineteen seventy-one. In a significant turning point in world history, the year 1971 saw the momentous Bangladesh Liberation War come to a close, with the triumph of Indian forces and the subsequent establishment of Bangladesh. The end of this tumultuous conflict marked a crucial juncture in both South Asian regional relations and global politics. Now delving further into these events is our astute war correspondent Brian Bastable. This is the war you don't want to miss. The war that screams for the best seats in the house and demands a standing ovation. This is the war that says, look at me, look at me, look at the devastation of my fiery moor, as if from the bottom of a mine shaft. This is the war that will live on in infamy. When the story is finally told, this will be the chapter that will turn the heads of all who hear it. For here in this battle, history was made. History was torn asunder, mutilated, castrated, dehumanized, and left to wither in the heat of the day. We arrived at the battlefield to witness what can only be described as the mother of all battles. Two forces bent on each other's destruction like two dogs over a bone. In the distance, the sound of rockets being launched. In the foreground, the sound of men crying like babies. This is the war that says, I will give you peace, but only in death. As we drove forward, we could see the ground littered with the remnants of man's folly. Here a wounded soldier lay, his leg shattered like a twig, but he was not alone. For he was being tended to by a group of men, their faces blackened with soot, their eyes red with the rage of the battlefield. They were like something out of a nightmare. And as we drove deeper into the battle, we saw things we would not forget, things that will haunt us for the rest of our days. For this is the war that says, I will leave my mark on you, I will never leave you alone. And as we spoke to the men on the ground, 
we knew that this was not a battle they would soon forget, for here in this war the price of peace was etched in blood. And as we left the battlefield we knew that this war was far from over, for here in this theatre of war the curtain had not yet come down. And as we made our way back to base we knew that this was just the beginning, for here in this war the story was just getting started. And we knew that we would be here to see it through to the end. Brian Bastable, Newsbang. A 2014. In 2014, a hostage ordeal in Sydney, Australia occurred. A chocolate cafe, Lint, was taken over during a terrorist attack by a single gunman named Man Haran Monis. Ten customers and eight employees were seized as the gunman's demands escalated. Eventually, the police stormed the building in an effort to free the hostages and neutralize the threat. Unfortunately, one hostage was killed in the process along with the attacker. The tragic incident shone a light on global terrorism and heightened security measures for public establishments. Our reporter Ken Shit has more on this event. Good evening, degenerates. As we delve into the depths of 2014, let's not forget the year that brought us Ebola, ISIS and a goddamn chocolate cafe siege in Sydney, Australia. A lone gunman by the name of Manharan Monis decided to hold 10 customers and 8 employees hostage in a Lint chocolate cafe. Lint, folks, the Swiss chocolatier known for its delectable truffles and bars. Who would have thought that a place of sweet indulgence could turn into a bloody nightmare? Monis was like a twisted Willy Wonka, but instead of giving out golden tickets, he was doling out terror. He demanded that an Islamic flag be raised outside the cafe and threatened to harm the hostages if his demands weren't met. The situation was as tense as a chocolate truffle on a hot summer day. After an agonizing 16 hours, the police finally stormed the building. They engaged in a fierce firefight with Monis, ultimately killing him and one poor hostage in the process. It was a tragic end to an already horrifying ordeal. This is Ken Shit reminding you that even in a world filled with sweet treats and decadent delights, there are still monsters lurking in the shadows, waiting to strike at any moment. Stay vigilant, my friends. 1922. In 1922, an unprecedented and tragic event took the life of Gabriel Narutowicz, the first elected president of Poland. This engineer and independent politician was tragically assassinated just five days after commencing his term office by Eligiusz Niewiadomski, a man with a sketchy past. The political implications of this act reverberated throughout the world, particularly in Eastern Europe, where political upheaval was commonplace. As we remember this momentous event from history, we can only hope for more peaceful times to follow in the years to come. Joining us now with insights on this period is our correspondent, Hardeman Pesto. Gabriel Narutovich was indeed a man of many talents, not just as an engineer, but also as a statesman. His assassination came as a shock to many, myself included. If I may ask, Mr. Narutovich, your thoughts on the state of affairs in Poland at the time? I believed that Poland, after centuries of struggle, had finally achieved independence and deserved to be recognized as a sovereign nation. I was committed to the development of the country and its people. However, my assassination brought about a period of political instability in Poland. We're glad to have you on the show, Mr. Narutowicz. Can you tell us why did you refuse to sign the Sejm's declaration 
requesting that the League of Nations intervene in the dispute over the Eastern Territories. I felt that it was essential to maintain Poland's independence in negotiations with its neighbors. I opposed any intervention by the League of Nations, which might have resulted in Poland's loss of sovereignty. So, Mr. Narutowicz, did you not trust the League of Nations to act in Poland's best interests? I trusted the League of Nations, but I feared that Poland's foreign policy could be dictated by other powers. I believed that Poland should be free to negotiate its own destiny. And what would you have done differently if you had been given the chance? I would have continued to work towards a peaceful resolution of the dispute over the Eastern Territories. I believed that diplomacy and negotiation were the best means to achieve this goal. Mr. Narutowicz, your assassination was a tragedy not just for Poland, but for the world. Your vision for Poland's future was one of hope and ambition. If only you had been given the chance to fulfill it. I am grateful for your words. I I remain committed to the principles of independence, democracy and peace, for which I gave my life. Thank you, Mr. Narutowicz, for being on the show. You've given us a glimpse into the past and a reminder of the sacrifices made for the sake of a brighter future. No, Pesto, we thank him for being on the show. A truly remarkable man. And a reminder of the fragility of hope in these trying times. Indeed, Martin. Indeed. 1850. The Canterbury Association, founded in 1848, aimed to set up a New Zealand colony known as Canterbury, with Christchurch as the capital. The first four ships transported settlers in 1850, leading to the successful establishment of the area. However, the association's economic struggles led to its dissolution in 1855. Currently, Christchurch, now New Zealand's second-largest city with a population of around 396,200 people, serves as the largest urban area on the South Island. And this is Melody Wintergreen reporting from Canterbury. Today, the year 2023 finds Christchurch in the throes of modernity. The towering spires of progress pierce the sky like shining beacons of growth. Yet, amidst this bustling metropolis, echoes of a simpler past can still be heard. From the leafy suburbs to the vibrant city center, the spirit of that pioneering era still lingers. Let us take a stroll through the lush Hagley Park with its rolling hills and gentle streams and imagine the first settlers marveling at this verdant paradise. The city center is a flurry of activity, with the Canterbury Museum showcasing the rich heritage of the region and the Christchurch Art Gallery entrancing visitors with its cutting-edge contemporary art. But it is the Christchurch Cathedral that holds the key to understanding the soul of this city. Its majestic spire, once reduced to rubble by a devastating earthquake in 2011, now shines anew a testament to the resilience of its people. This is a city that has weathered the storms of time and emerged triumphant. As we leave Hagley Park, we can hear the gentle strains of a busker's guitar mingling with the aroma of freshly brewed coffee from a nearby cafe. The streets are alive with the hustle and bustle of everyday life, but there is a sense of calm, of serenity that pervades this city. It is a feeling that those early pioneers would surely recognize, a feeling of belonging, of being part of something greater. So on this day, as we reflect on the rich history of Christchurch, 
Let us also look forward to its bright future. For, like the city itself, we are all works in progress, shaped by the past, but driven by the promise of tomorrow. Melody Wintergreen, reporting for Newsbang, in Christchurch, New Zealand, a city that truly shines in the heart of the South Island. Newsbang, stuffing the turkey of truth with factual fillings. In 1997, the UK government enacted rules against the sale of beef on the bone due to an outbreak of BSE or mad cow disease. This led to a national ban, which resulted in 4 million cattle being slaughtered. The restrictions lifted in 99 and the act got abolished in Oden 8. Now Perkins Stornoway reports from London's Stock Exchange on the impact it made on the beef industry back then. The pound rose in value today amidst Brexit uncertainty, but the market struggled with supply chain issues and inflation. From the year 1997, the cow market plunged into the abyss, dogger, slight or moderate. Bovine bone sales rocketed to 2.9, up 1.2%. A devastating outbreak of mad cow disease saw Britain abandon all beef diseased. The entire herd up to the sky, Shannon, south, veering southeast, four or five. Four million head were slaughtered, Viking, slight or moderate, the entire cattle population. Forties, veering southeast, three or four 178 humans perished from infected beef. Dump truck of fear, Biscay occasionally poor. Today, beef on the bone was banned, heading south, west, backing southwest, four or five. Cattle across the land, Hebrides, occasionally rough. Cow-boned restrictions lifted, south, south, south. Thames, fair, occasionally good. The beef ban on the continent was to end soon, Cromarty, fair, occasionally poor. On tonight's trading news, Lundy, fair later. Stock exchange turmoil continued with banks holding 782, 213, 61 and 20 in pounds, 67,000 euros. Fastnet, north or northeast, variable. Rockall, west, occasionally poor, with the euro still under pressure. Seoul, becoming fog patches. Good, occasionally moderate. Thus, in summary, Trafalgar, east or northeast, three or four. It's another mad day in beefland business. Adieu. 1997. In 1997, the Pokemon anime episode Deno Senshi Porygon caused a plethora of seizures in over 600 kids. The popular Japanese series had its share of controversies, and this incident brought further scrutiny and concern to the franchise. Fast forward to today, Pokemon remains an influential part of our pop culture landscape. Further investigations into this issue were carried out by our correspondent Smithsonian Moss, now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Whoa! Your eyes ain't deceived you kiddos. It's Smithsonian Moss here and she's back baby. And we're talking about a piece of anime history so unforgettable it'll give you the seizes. Or, wait, nah, epileptic seizures. Yeah, that's it. So sit back, Relax and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of Japan's favorite pastime, watching kids duking it out with their Pokemon cards. Now, before we dive into the details, 
let's turn back time to a bygone era, when Britney was at the top of her game, Saves the Day was our anthem, and the Xbox was still a pipe dream. We're talking about 1997 babes. In this year of gritty JNCO jeans and neon scrunchies, one little slice of 90s nostalgia shook the foundations of cartoon-loving America, and its name was Deno Senshi Porygon. You see, folks, this wasn't just any old episode of a cute kitty show about Pokemon and their card-based adventures. No, no, no. It was like a horror flick on acid, where epileptic seizures were the star of the show. I'm talking about more seizures than a seahorse mating season. Oh, and guess what? They were hitting the young'uns, kiddos, the vulnerable members of our society. 685 kids. I mean, is that even legal? Well, kids, I don't want to break your hearts, but these weren't just your garden-variety seizures. Nah, these babies were epileptic, and there ain't no coming back from that kind of badness. But hey, let's look on the bright side. The parents got to skip the whole episode and take a fun-filled trip to the emergency room for seizure management. So there you have it, ladies, gentlemen, and folks of every persuasion. When the clock strikes midnight on this unforgettable day, just remember, it ain't the end if you're having seizures. No, it's the start of a whole new adventure of feeling like a wet sponge. Just gotta catch them all. You're too weak now, Deno Senshi Porygon. You couldn't even bring me down. Ha! Smithsonian Moss, signing off. Now let's raise a toast to these epileptic heroes and their unforgettable journey. Yahoo! News bang. Slipping the surly bonds of cliché to touch truth. 1653. A complex character, Oliver Cromwell dominated the British political landscape during the mid-1600s. His tenure as Lord Protector was marked by significant achievements, a new form of republican government known as the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland, but also by controversy due to his use of military power to maintain control and its application in Ireland. The Commonwealth era ended in 1660, an intriguing chapter in British history. As we navigate these complexities, Pastor Kevin Monstrance will provide further insights on the life and legacy of Oliver Cromwell during this period as part of our report. Well, 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 1653 was quite the year. Old Cromwell and his croppy cronies chopping off King Charlie's head and setting up a right ruckus all over England. Not that I was around to witness it firsthand, unless reincarnation is more real than I reckon. But the history books paint a vivid picture of the chaos and confusion of those times. Why, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Bartholomew Chuffnell wrote extensively in his diaries about the anxiety and uncertainty people felt with Cromwell, lording over Parliament and marching his new model army all through the countryside. <laughs> Said you couldn't pass a pub in London without hearing shouting matches over whether Crommy was England's saviour or Satan himself. Now Bartholomew Chuffnell was quite the character, or so I gather from those dusty old diaries I found in my auntie's attic. Had a reputation as the village eccentric, ran about in a wizard's cloak and pointed hat, only taking them off for Sunday service. Tried to convince the local children. He could turn turnips into gold if they fetched him enough goose feathers. Oh, and he was a dreadful hypochondriac too. 
convinced he had contracted foul humours and megrims whenever the wind changed. No wonder poor Nana Shufnell was at her wit's end dealing with him. <laughs> Speaking of adult relations, have I ever told you about my cousin Bertie Bullfinch, the conspiracy theorist? Ah, dear Bertie, that man can spin wilder yarns than a sailor on shore leave. Why, once over a pint at the Dog and Duck, he tried convincing me the moon landing was faked by lizard people to hide the moon's Nazi base. And his latest theory is that Cromwell wasn't actually Cromwell at all, but a sentient wheel of cheese that murdered the real Oliver and took his place using dark magic. <laughs> Utterly balmy, I know. But in Bertie's defence, he did once produce a very old portrait of someone who looked vaguely cheese-like, if you squinted. He claimed it was a camembert casting, done by a time-travelling painter intent on revealing the truth. Codswallop, obviously, but leave it to Bertie to latch onto the most absurd explanations. <laughs> well, I've prattled on long enough. Don't want to keep you from your cocoa and slippers. Whether led by a, a regicidal Puritan or a demonic dairy product, seems England survived those chaotic Commonwealth years well as it could. Just glad I wasn't around back then to deal with it personally, though I suppose if a wheel of Stilton had tried taking over, at least there'd be plenty of cheese for all. Good night, all. <laughs> Good evening, I'm Martin Bang with Newsbang's final roundup of tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Civil War General bans Jews from southern states, Grant's controversial order sparks debate. The Telegraph. Graf Speeder scuttled in river plate drama. Captain Langsdorff goes down with ship, then himself. The Guardian. IRA. Targets Harrods in bloody attack. Carnage outside iconic London store, military targets warned next. The Daily Mail. Union, General bans bagels for breakfast. Grant's anti-Semitic order leaves troops, hungry and angry. The Sun, Nazi warship sunk by plucky Brits. Jolly good show, chaps. Captain Langsdorff walks the plank. And finally, The Onion. IRA confuses Harrods for army barracks, blames poor map reading, luxury shoppers caught in crossfire of terror error. That's it for tonight's newsbang. Join us tomorrow for more history as it shouldn't be reported. Bye-bye and bottoms up. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>